The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. Today on the show, it's a politics doubleheader. <laughs> you might have thought we're just an arts and culture show, and we still mostly are. We still are. mostly are, but it's important to keep an eye on the things happening civically around us as it often affects both arts and culture. And we think perhaps that Congressman Jim McGovern is feeling quite a bit of that lately. Hey, how are you? Hanging in there. NEPM fun drive yeah. time, so it's, uh, yeah, now that I'm on public radio, oh, okay. we have to ask people for money on the air all the time, so this has been a new experience for me. Usually I'm asking people for money for, for other people. Hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. I, I was supposed to go to this event that I misread on my calendar. I walk into <laughs> Union Station, but it's actually at Easter Market, so I'm walking back. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I'm a mess. It's a confusing time all over the place, Congressman. It's just depressing to get up and put the news on. And I mean, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Congress, what's ha- I mean. Not a lot you can get done when there's a, there's no Speaker of the House. Yeah, I know. Well, we'll get to that. Time for our weekly conversation with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Congressman Jim McGovern. Front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette this morning, McGovern joins joint call for ceasefire. It is an article written by Alexander McDougall. It starts off saying there is a different path in Gaza. U.S. Representative Jim McGovern and six other Democratic lawmakers are calling for ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas that has killed more than 4,000 people on both sides. Most people know that the president went to the Holy Land yesterday, gave a speech from there. He'll be giving a speech this evening that NEPM will be carrying live. There are only Democratic members of Congress that have joined on to this call for a ceasefire right now. Any hope for a bipartisan support to try to bring some sanity to the horrific, heartbreaking insanity that we're witnessing? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know, to be honest with you. Some of the discussion, even, you know, amongst some of the calls that we're getting to our office are so polarized. I mean, there's no middle ground, uh, if you will. And look, let me just say this. I mean, what happened, the, the, the Hamas's attack on Israel was barbaric and it is unjustified. There was no rationale for it. I mean, it is a pure evil act of terror. And when people say to me that this is about the Palestinians, I mean, Hamas has never been about the Palestinians. I mean, Hamas is not the Palestinians and the Palestinians are not Hamas. In Hamas's charter is a call to destroy Israel, period. Having said all of that, there are people who are caught in the middle of all of this, not just the hostages, not just Israeli civilians who have suffered greatly, but civilians in Gaza, Palestinians, who have been oppressed for a long, long, long time. And it's not just by Israel, by the way. It is also by surrounding Arab states, you know, for all of their talk, you know, never provide their resources to help Palestinians have a decent life or even is not are not even willing to take Palestinians into their countries during this difficult time so they could have safety. They stand on the sidelines and just demagogue on this issue. But in Gaza, which is a small area, 40 square miles, I guess it, it is, there are 2 million people. Half of those people are children. So the constant bombing, the cutoff of supplies of water, of food, and medical supplies. It is devastating on Palestinians who are just trapped in in Gaza who have no place to go. My view is that maybe let's just let's just see if we can come to an agreement to have a ceasefire or a temporary cessation of hostilities. Let's open up a corridor to get humanitarian in and we can get the assurances that the humanitarian aid will go to 
civilians and it will not be intercepted by Hamas. That could be a precondition. Let's get people out. We have, I have constituents that are still stuck in, in Gaza who can't get out. Let's figure out whether there's a way to get the hostages. You know, and look, Israel has a right to defend itself. But I would just say this, you know, when we were attacked on September 11th, you know, we did some things that I think if we can turn the clock back, we might not do. The invasion of Iraq the endless war in Afghanistan, you know, the, the torture at Abu Ghraib prison. These are things that I think people at the time said, we're going to do whatever, right? To get at Al-Qaeda, even torture people. But now when we look back on it, we say, God, that was what a mistake. You know, it diminished our standing in the world. And uh, look, Israel's an ally. Israel's a friend. I believe Israel not only has a right to exist, they have a right to defend themselves. But as a friend, you have to say to a friend that you need to Think long and hard before you launch a ground invasion, before you reoccupy Gaza, before you move ahead in a way that, quite frankly, might result in so many civilian casualties that you lose international support. This is a, a very delicate moment. And I, you know, look, I, I, I think this is the right thing to do. You know, obviously, I, I'm not sure it's, it, would, it will happen. President Biden was successful in getting Egypt to say that they would open up a humanitarian corridor so supplies could come in. We'll see whether that happens. That's not the first time we've heard it. In any event, it's a very, very, it's a moment fraught with a lot of danger, not just in the immediate term, but in the long term as well. And then we also have to figure out once this is over with, you know, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we encourage responsible leadership uh, of the Palestinians and not a terrorist organization? I mean, we, 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 we have to have some rationality where the Palestinians have a homeland, have, a, have an independent state where they can live a good life and, you know, prosper where Israelis have security and they don't have to be worried about innocent civilians being attacked. I mean, I, this is a time, you know, not to go to our usual silos. It's, it's a time to, how do we end this violence? How do we get the hostages released? How do we ensure Israeli security? And how do we ensure that the Palestinians have a better future? That when this is all over, it's not everybody goes back to the same old, same old, where the Palestinians live in this open air prison called Gaza. They continue to be repressed by uh, Hamas, by Israel, and by and ignored by other Arab nations. They can't go back to the way it was. A ceasefire, opening up a corridor, getting getting humanitarian supplies in the short term. At least that's something, you know. If we can get that done successfully, then maybe there's a way forward. Speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern, you've mentioned a few times that there are people within your district that are trying to flee yep. to safety. There's a, a friend of mine yep. who uh, lives in Turner's Falls. Her family is from uh, Israel originally. She's an Israeli who's gone back there to fight for the rights of the Palestinian people. She's made it to safety. Uh, we are hearing a lot about the Medway father who's been trapped in Gaza. Well, that's my district. Tell us about what you know yeah. about that story and what you feel comfortable sharing about the yeah. process of trying well, to it, bring it, relief to it, that. It, 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 it's a couple with a, with a, with a young child. You know, we've been in touch with them. I mean, they um, have a, a lawyer friend who's helping coordinate things here. I mean, they, they were told to go to the to the border of Egypt where there would be, you know, there would be a safe corridor. And that was like Thursday, you know, and here we are a week later and that corridor has not been opened. I mean, it's complicated, right? I mean, part of it is getting an assurance from Israel that, you know, they'll stop bombing while they let people cross. It's getting an assurance from Hamas that they will not do anything to disrupt people's ability to leave. And then it's it's getting an assurance from Egypt that they will open the corridor. And Egypt has not wanted to do that. I mean, I, we give Egypt like a billion dollars, billions of dollars in aid. They have a terrible human rights record. One would think they would be willing to help us facilitate the safe crossing, not just of American citizens and other foreign citizens, but also maybe perhaps provide a safe 
place for temporarily for Palestinians who are caught in the middle of all of this. Anyway, supposedly, uh, you know, the president got this assurance that now for real, everybody's on board and we'll see what happens in the next 24 hours. It seems almost trite in comparison to the humanitarian crisis going on right now, but the House of Representatives is also in disarray. Uh, Jim Jordan failed to win Speaker of the House. There is an interesting proposal put forward by two former GOP speakers, John Boehner and Newt Gingrich, who in their era seemed like they were hard right-wing Republicans and who now seem like a voice of sanity who are calling to endorse uh, expanding the powers of the Speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry. Would this be an idea that the Democrats could get behind just so that if there needs to be additional funding for what's going on in the Holy Land, if there needs to be additional funding for anything, that this could move forward? Absolutely. And we have said to Republicans, I mean, and I think it has to has to come from a Republican, but we have said that we're willing to work with them on a bipartisan path forward. And if you can't work out your internal struggles in the short term, you can elect a speaker pro tem. This is not unprecedented. You know, when Sam Rayburn was the speaker of the House in the 1960s, he'd go on vacation for two months and then elect a speaker pro tem to keep the House running while he was on vacation. You know, we can do this. And I think the only thing Democrats would ask in return is that, you know, we don't bring crazy stuff to the floor that you guarantee us that that you will at least bring a bill to the floor to keep the government running, that you will allow there to be votes on important issues, and that you not bring just purely Protestant stuff to the floor. I mean, just give, give us a breather for a couple of months. You know, we're not asking you to bring dem- all Democratic bills to the floor. You, you technically are in charge. But we want some assurance that we're not going to just go back into, a, you know, this, this insanity of, of bringing these messaging bills that are just aimed at dividing the country. And I think that Patrick McHenry or, or Tom Cole or, you know, a number of people, people I disagree with on on most issues, but who I think are reasonable. I think they could probably fulfill that role and you can put a time limit on it if you want to, but we we need to make sure that we're operable. There's too much at stake. You know, President Biden is talking about this massive aid package for a whole bunch of things. In it um, is not only uh, aid for Israel, but in it, he wants to put significant aid, uh, humanitarian aid for the Palestinians. I think that is vital. We, I mean, but we can't get that aid to anybody if we do not have a speaker because we cannot schedule anything for a vote. My hope is that uh, Republicans will entertain this idea that, that you mentioned has been endorsed by Boehner and by Gingrich. I don't, and again, I never thought I'd say I agree with Boehner and Gingrich, but I, I do. We need to do this. We need to, we need to get this. Uh, we need to have a temporary speaker pro tem until we get a permanent one. Before we let you go, Congressman, lots of photo ops on your social media yesterday from hanging out with the acclaimed actor Richard Gere. What were you doing hanging out with Richard Gere in the halls of Congress so, yesterday? Uh, Richard Gere and I have worked a long time together on uh, in support of Tibet. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I think he's a great actor, but I, he's also a great humanitarian and a great activist. And um, so he was in town. We're, we were talking about some legislation that I've introduced on Tibet that he's supportive of. And also that His Holiness the Dalai Lama will turn 90 in the year 2025 and about you know how we need to have a global effort to honor His Holiness and to elevate the issue of Tibet, but also to elevate what the Dalai Lama stands for, and that is peace and love and respect and tolerance. And those are things that we all need to uh, reflect on, especially now with this very, very challenging world that we're living in. And so it was a great, it was a great meeting. And again, uh, 
you know, Richard's a friend and I, I think the world of him and I admire, you know, all that he's done, not just in terms of his acting profession, but what he's done in terms of uh, fighting for good causes. You should invite him on the food bank march. The One of the most meaningful <laughs> moments that ever happened for me on the, in the years of doing this food bank march is when the Tibetan community surrounded us in Amherst and, and draped us in these prayer shawls. It was such a powerful and moving and spiritual moment on this event. So yeah, bring him along. I'll reach out to him see if he's around. <laughs> Sign-ups for the Food Bank March are happening right now. You can join Congressman Jim McGovern, me, and many others as we march from Springfield to Greenfield over two days, November 20th and 21st, Thanksgiving week. You can go to check out all the details on the Food Bank's website, foodbankwma.org. Congressman Jim McGovern joins us every week. Is happy to answer all of your questions. You can send us an email at thefab413 at nepm.org. Thank you as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Officer and a gentleman? That's right. <laughs> in our ongoing effort to interview all the mayoral candidates in all the cities that have a mayoral race in the fabulous 413, we find ourselves back at the Greenfield Public Library where we came and did a live broadcast at the grand opening. With a harvest. And Mo Willems, <laughs> the children's book author. This library is gorgeous and we've commandeered a room where we are sitting with mayoral candidate, city councilor, Virginia Ginny DeSorger. Is it okay if we call you Ginny? Yes. <laughs> it is in broad, bold letters on your, on your on sweatshirt. sweatshirt. Virginia so. Ginny DeSorger, mayor for us all, it says. And we spoke with the mayor of Greenfield at Catalpa Coffee. She had to compete with lattes being made. We're in a library, so it's a lot quieter <laughs> uh, here. This is where you wanted to hold the conversation. Why, why is that, Ginny? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I listened to the other one, and I could hear the coffee noises, etc. And this this new place is absolutely fabulous. So I thought it was a good, quiet place to be where we could have a good conversation. And I do want to tell you that my mother only called me Virginia when she was mad at me. Oh, so we'll be, yeah, we'll be careful. So, so I go by Ginny, but we know what's going to be on the ballot. It's Virginia, so we say that all the time. I'm going out on a limb here. I know you've been in Greenfield for 10-ish years. Where from near Boston are you from originally? I grew up in Needham. Uh -huh. and I knew it! <laughs> I raised my three children in Medfield. I have nine grandchildren. The littlest ones are going to be two on Halloween. And I won't be down there with them because I'm here campaigning. You'll be going door to door, but not for candy. That is correct. I have not. You can have candy as a bonus. Yeah, you can like... dress up as a mayoral candidate. Yes. Tell us what brought you to Greenfield from the Boston area. So um, one of my children was in Shelburne. One was in Shelburne. The other one was in um, St. Albans, Vermont. He's still there. And my third one was in Williamstown. So they were all like, Mom, come on out this way. <laughs> I moved to Shelburne for 10 months. And they said, come out, see if you like it out here. And I got to the Rotary, and my shoulders kind of relaxed mm -hmm. as soon as I got to the Rotary off 91. And I thought, this is a very peaceful place. So I, I rented, actually, in Shelburne for 10 months. And in 10 months, I knew everyone there, honestly, because I go to everything. <laughs> and I needed a bigger community. And I actually chose Greenfield purposely, looking at the what the mix of people was. Because actually, I, I told you the two places that I was from, it's not they're not exactly diverse. Yeah, no. And so I, I actually picked this. I'm a numbers person. I looked at the demographics and I thought, this is where I want to be. We have everything here, and we most assuredly do. Speaking with candidate Jenny DeSorger, who is running for mayor of Greenfield against the incumbent mayor, Roxanne Wiedegardner. Uh, she's going for her second term. She's a longtime uh, member of different committees, 
the planning board, the school committee over the years. She has a long history with the city, although a transplant herself. You can hear it in her accent, too. Mm-hmm. Tell us what makes you want to challenge the incumbent mayor and makes you think you are the right person to be mayor of this city. The city, formerly known as the city known, known as, as the, the town, town of Greenfield. Greenfield. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Monty, every year you walk for people who are hungry. Flattery will get you everywhere. Okay, I'm just going to say and I've served on, this is my fourth year on city council. The people of Greenfield are hungry for someone with values and integrity and somebody who is listening to them. I, too, have served on numerous boards here and in my other life. I've been on the planning board for six years. I was the vice chair. I've been on the uh, executive board of the YMCA, the finance board. Disability Access Commission here for 10 years. City Council, I have chaired economic development as well as ways and means, and I have volunteered for everything, including directing traffic during the Winter Carnival (laughs) and guarding ice sculptures until 3 a.m. Yeah, because people were trashing those ice sculptures, which was so sad. (laughs) I stood out there and I put a little siren app on my phone in case anyone came to actually knock one of them over. I thought, well, what will I do? Like, as if the police were coming. Maybe they'd go away. (laughs) You were an ER nurse for years. Why switch to, or why get involved in politics? Uh, I've always been interested in politics, and when I first graduated from college in 1974, I'm dating myself, I had my first party for someone running for state rep to remain nameless because he's actually the only person I ever had something for that didn't make it to the finish line, (laughs) I might add. I have um, buttons out here, you know, grandmothers for Elizabeth, for Elizabeth Warren. I've always been active in politics never missed a town meeting. We, we had to sit through them two nights, town meeting in midfield on those hard benches. So I've always been a part of something. One of the things that has been controversial in the city of Greenfield recently that you were specifically involved in is the school budget. Now you, as you mentioned, are part of the Ways and Means Committee. You're on the city councilor, speaking with Ginny DeSorga, who's running for mayor of Greenfield. There was a budget cut to the tune of about $1.5 million. We spoke with the mayor about her take on why that cut needed to happen, that the school department was asking for a percentage that was too high for what she felt that the city could afford. You, along with the Ways and Means Committee, um, had a plan to not cut that school budget where you essentially went through the employee health insurance line item and the debt servicing line item and helped to try to close that gap. The critique of that is that that makes it seem like Greenfield isn't a good place to be hired. Tell us your take on what happened with the school budget and why you and the Ways and Means Committee went that route to try to fill that gap for the schools. Just don't take that microphone away from me, okay? (laughs) We're going to be here a while. (laughs) I am so happy that you are asking about that because the non-facts that went along with that are very significant. Yes, a million five was cut from the school budget. It showed a very a lack of good judgment to be cutting that much from the school budget at that time. We had just settled a contract with our teachers and our instructional assistants. Teachers, NIAs, have been leaving our district for years because they were being underpaid. They were moving to other municipalities where they were paid higher. So the contract was settled, and I think it was maybe a couple of weeks after the budget cuts for a million and a half were made to the school budget. 
that meant that the school budget was only going to increase by 3%. Other budgets within the town increased. The executive branch increased 16.2%. There was a 9.77% increase to public safety, a 6.23% to public works, almost a 10% increase to total culture and recreation, a 28.68% increase to debt service, and a mere 3% to the Greenfield Public Schools. The children are our future. And it was shocking to me. Everyone knows the, the psychological, educational, social implications that COVID had on these children. Look at our MCAS scores this year. I hate MCAS tests, but if you look at them as a measure, we are in trouble. We did not pull away from our businesses here in town when we were in trouble with COVID. This was a very poor judgment to take that money away. Now, I'd like to go on for a minute, if sure. I Sure. This is Ginny Disorder, running for mayor of Greenfield, talking about the recent school budget proposed cut and how that gap was filled. I have heard criticism about where we actually took that funding from. I would just like to say, first of all, my dad was an accountant, and I graduated winning the math award. So I have a very good understanding of numbers. We took from a very padded area of the budget. The health insurance line historically has been over budget by five hundred to $700,000 every single year. The health insurance premiums have gone up 5% over the last 10 years, but our budget for health insurance has increased by 26%. So I just want to be clear, at the end of this particular year in the health insurance line, do you know how much we had left over? $730,000. So where does that money go at end of fiscal 2022? It's going to go right into free cash. And do you know what free cash I discovered last night? <laughs> last night in DLS, that's the Department of Local Services. Not that we had been told this yet, but free cash this year is $2,804,628. So we certainly weren't short, were we? That money that you didn't spend from last year goes into free cash, can be reappropriated this year. It can go into stabilization funds, et cetera, et cetera. Additionally, additionally, knowing that we had that much left over every single year in that one budget line item, we had more than we have ever had in our stabilization accounts. Do you know what stabilization accounts are? Yes. Okay. How much is in them right now? Do you know? Oh, uh, yes, about eight million or eight and a half million. Nine to ten percent of our budget is in stabilization. And I would love you to listen to our first Ways and Means budget meeting. Because at that meeting, we I asked for all of the stabilization balances and neither the mayor nor the new finance director knew about a pension stabilization fund that we had with a million dollars. I heard about people saying that you couldn't hide money. You most assuredly can. Again, I live in Springfield, <laughs> so... My, at the end of my first year on Ways and Means, we discovered a fund called the Mayor's Discretionary Fund that I didn't know about. And last year, this past budget season, my fourth year, there was another fund with money in it that we actually, as Ways and Means members, we were not told about. So actually, yes, there are things that you actually don't know about. So the information that I heard last week, I just want to be very clear, that was not true. So the funds that you found, have you also discovered any ways over the past 
years and administrations that they've been used for the city. Because having stabilization funds and all these things are oh, they're not that bad to have, and a lot of most cities no, have. Them. Oh, like it's a matter of like, are they purely places where money has been stored, or have those funds been used for any projects in the city so far? They've been used for wonderful things, absolutely wonderful things. We have a contract stabilization that we use when a contract is settled. There's a small amount of money in that. We have a capital stabilization fund that we had like $2 million in, and we use that for, that could be used to buy a, a, a truck, it could be used for the police project. Last year, I believe, we took a million out of that to put towards the fire station project. It's a wonderful idea to be, to be having some free cash and putting it into those accounts. But to say that there was no way that it was possible to fund the school budget just wasn't true, not when you had the highest amounts that you'd ever had in reserves, and not in the very first budget meeting. You really should have listened to this. When I said, there's, there's another million dollars, the United, uh, they didn't even know they had that. But yes, they've been used for good things. We will continue to use them for good things. We can move them out of general stabilization for many different uses. It seems, as somebody who served on the school committee, the mayor of Greenfield, that she doesn't not care about the schools. Why do you think that was cut from your opinion of what you've observed as a, as a citizen, as a person who sits on the Ways and Means Committee, as a counselor? Was it a lack of understanding, in your opinion, of the budget or something else? I'm actually not going to guess at somebody else's motivation for doing something. I have my thoughts on that, and I'm going to keep those to myself. Meet Virginia. More with candidate for Greenfield Mayor, Councillor Ginny DeSorger, coming up. Speaking with Ginny DeSorger, who's running for mayor of Greenfield against incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner, who we spoke to last week. Another one of the big controversies that the city has endured over the course of the last few years has to do with a jury finding of racial animus against the police chief, Robert Haig, and the Greenfield Police Department. It is very convoluted. I direct you again to the conversation with Mayor Roxanne Wiedegarden, which gets into some of the details of what went on there. What we do know is that a jury found there was racial animus, that supposedly for reasons other than the jury finding, the chief was put on a suspension, on a leave. He's now back. How, if you were mayor, Ginny DeSorger, would you have handled that situation differently, if at all? Well, I'm just going to say this. This is one of the things that I thought showed a total lack of good judgment by the current mayor was the handling of the whole police situation. There's no place for discrimination and racial animus in this city in any department or in any department head. I would not have said right after a jury verdict came out that they had gotten it wrong, which was what she indicated from what she first said. She put two people on leave. I don't know if you knew that because I listened to your interview. I didn't know that, yeah. Okay, but... Can't get too deep into the weeds. Okay. I'm having a short amount of time here. Okay, I'm just talking about... Let's just talk about retaliation. That was part of the verdict. There's no place for retaliation either in this city. The person who was the plaintiff and the person who was the chief were treated very differently. One had his car removed and had to stay at home during working hours, and the other was not. That's just not treating two people the same. So I felt that from the onset, that was handled very, very poorly. I also think that promotions are a really big deal in a police department. When somebody's promoted to the sergeant or the lieutenant, it's a big deal. And the mayor is allowed to weigh in 
on those promotions, but she chose not to. And while she was in office in, in her second year, um, she too passed over Patrick Buchanan for sergeant. That was the fourth time that he was passed over. Was this um, after the jury finding or no, before? No, it was just about as the court case began, probably about six months later. But they added that to the uh, complaint, additional retaliation and additional you know, loss for him. So he was passed over a fourth time that year. It is worth noting that that jury finding comes from before this mayor's term. Most of those situations happened, most of what was going on prior to her term in office. That's true, but if you were handed a promotion list knowing that a court case was about to begin, now I'm not talking your first year, your second year, would you not look it over and question it? I know you're not the person here who's answering the questions, but I know that I most certainly would have looked at that. So I don't think that that showed good judgment at all. Then I'd like to go on a little further to when our police chief announced in January of this year that he was going to eliminate the night shift. And the mayor agreed with him that that was a good idea. Who does that? This comes after the city council voted to drastically cut the police budget. The police chief then comes out and says, well, then we can't afford to have a night shift. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I ran an emergency room during budget cuts, and we had people who came to us and they said, are you going to close at night? Of course, your job, your main job is to keep people safe. You assure them, we will be there. We will take care of you. We will work harder. We will cover that. You don't say, if you are in charge of keeping people safe, you don't say, we're not having a night shift. You're all on your own. That is just not the way to go. It shows a total lack of good judgment. You have people with mental health issues, people victims of domestic violence. Can you imagine how they felt in that ensuing week when we didn't have an answer? That's not okay. We're speaking with candidate Ginny DeSorger, who's running for mayor of Greenfield against the incumbent mayor. Roxanne Wiedegardner, election day is Tuesday, November 7th. I think this is just going to be my blanket question for all the candidates, but so we are in the middle of a housing crisis and you have a large population of Haitian refugees at the Days Inn at the Rotary. This is going to be something that is definitely on your docket should you become mayor. How do you plan on approaching both or either of these and do you see them as linked? The housing crisis and, and the folks that are at the Days Inn? Yes. Is that is that your question? Mm. Yes, I definitely see them as linked and I'm I've been down there just so you know. So winter's coming as we know, we have this every year. The days in is full. I have been in housing meetings. I think they used 400 nights last year for folks who who are homeless in that days in or one of the local hotels that are now full. That of course makes one thing touching the other. The fact that the place where, where we actually house people in an emergency is full, it's like, what is the plan for this right now? I am very, very concerned about that. We did not have a plan last year. And last year, we had the hotel as a backup. Those cold nights are gonna be there. Where is everybody gonna go? What's the plan? I am thinking about that every day. What would your plan be? Where would they go if you were mayor? I've thought about a lot of different things. Maybe we turn on one of the bu- maybe one of the buses turns on at night. It's just a place to keep them warm. I'm not sure. It, it has to be a place that the fire chief inspects and says is okay. We have a couple of empty buildings, like the Green River School, but there isn't heat and water in it. 
that wouldn't pass with the with the fire chief. So the John's on center turning on some of the buses at night. I don't know what the answer is now. And actually, I can't make those decisions yet. I actually can't make that plan yet because I'm not in a place where I should be talking to department heads. But I can assure you that if I were, that would be on my conversation on a daily basis right now. It's a really tough problem, <clears throat> and it is definitely exacerbated by having one of our places full. And they're here. I welcome them. I've been down, and I actually was trying to learn a few phrases in Haitian, which I did not do very well <laughs> with. Uh, but is housing development something that you're looking at in order to alleviate this problem kind of across the board? I, I know you're you're saying that it's not something that you can plan for now, but like as a rough estimate, like where do you see that happening? How do you feel that you might be able to enact this? Well, we can't build housing fast enough. It's a nationwide crisis, a state crisis, and a local crisis. And I think we need like 600 more beds here in Greenfield. One of the things that's being talked about and, and, and thought about and planned for is perhaps when the temporary fire station goes down that we take that um, parking lot and use that for housing. The best way to build housing actually is on top of each other. Um, you make the best use of, of space that way. We have a, a mushrooming senior population, mushrooming, bigger than any other, any other place in Western Mass, huge, um, huge homeless population. But fr- some of our seniors would move into something if it was a little bit more a- accessible, maybe freeing up some of the houses for families. But I would work with any developer, private or, or not, who comes in with some type of a plan for development because, as I said, we can't build it fast enough. I actually thought, I was looking at thinking of podium housing on, on the French King, which wasn't something that everyone else agreed with, but I thought, housing, housing, housing. Everybody talks about, you know, jobs, but actually Massachusetts is one of the six states in the union that has a severe labor shortage. We have two jobs for every person. In Massachusetts. So I am very concerned about housing. I know that um, you've been doing a lot of door knocking, Ginny Disorder, going around to the city of Greenfield. Before we end our chat here, what are the major concerns that you're hearing from the citizens as you're going door to door, not trick-or-treating with your <laughs> grandchildren, but maybe trick-or-treating uh, while campaigning? Well, let me just say this that the door knocking is the very favorite part of my campaign. Being on the radio, the little dog. <laughs> That's dog, so funny because I'm exactly the opposite. I would yeah. be terrified to knock on a stranger's I, door. I worked for Perg for two summers, <laughs> and it was the worst. This might be exactly what you're meant to be doing. The, the people, I'm telling you, the people are glad I come. I knock, knock, knock on the door. I chat with them, some of them 10, some of them 15 minutes. Affordability. Affordability is, I would say, that comes up maybe five out of 10 houses. Affordability of everything, of just inflation in general? No, or? Uh, um, they're homeowners. I'm yeah. talking to homeowners almost most of the time. I've talked to people in apartment buildings, the affordability, they're talking about their rent. But mm-hmm. for the most part, actually, I'm talking about homeowners right now. They are concerned about their, their taxes. Mm-hmm. And they have a legitimate right to be concerned about their taxes. The assessment of residential properties has increased 36% in the last five years. And commercial assessments have only increased by 7%, which means that the burden has actually shifted dramatically onto the homeowners here. So whatever business you're bringing in, unless you're 
you're making that more equal, it is definitely falling on the homeowners. And it's an aging population. I talked to a man yesterday. He's 78 years old. We talked for like 15, 20 minutes. And he said, I'm worried that I will not be able to stay in my house, that I will not be able to afford to live here because of my taxes. Sidewalks come up, but people want to be listened to. They want to be listened to and they want to be heard. And uh, I love doing that. So thank you. Greenfield mayoral candidate Ginny DeSorger. Mayoral candidates next week on the show as well. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. Live Music Friday with longtime indie darling Mira, who makes an appearance at the Dreamaway Lodge in Beckett. More with our Media Lab fellows as Maggie, Maggie Kazmierski talks with Michael Connolly Sr., author of Moo, Lou, and Kayla Do Lemonade. And a wine thunderdome at Provisions in East Longmeadow where we'll taste a proper spooky season wine with purveyor Benson Hyde. Thanks to the tireless Fab 413 team. We're going to leave now, once again, while they say nice things about us in the show, but we encourage you to donate at nepm.org or 800-639-8850.